We return to our discussion with Dee Knight, who is sharing some important details about an unmentioned economic interest that the United States has in the Ukraine when it comes to the Nord Stream gas line. Enjoy. Perhaps more significant economically than Ukraine's interest is the U.S. interest. We found recently that beloved senator from Texas, Ted Cruz, made a lot of noise about trying to stop Nord Stream 2. And there are those who believe that if you look closely, you'll find that American interest, essentially American energy company interest, in replacing uh, Russian natural gas with U.S.-produced frack natural gas is a significant factor behind this whole flap. It's an interesting thing. Dee, can you speak to, are, are you aware of the cost difference that Ukrainians would should expect one versus the other if the Nord Stream 2 becomes active and up and running versus having to, I'm sure, incur those transportation costs and other costs to get the natural gas delivered from the United States to the Ukraine area? It's not so much the Ukraine. That's a, Ukraine is a transit point. The, oh, real, the real customer is Western Europe. Western Europe, thank you. And if you look, I think, down at the bottom of my article, you'll see a map of uh, both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Both of those pipelines go from uh, northwestern Russia down through the Baltic Sea underwater to northeast Germany. And what does that do? That bypasses Ukraine, where the bulk of the Russian national gas has to go through to get to, to Western Europe, uh, through Ukraine and Poland. But the key thing is, and all you got to do is, is look at the map and you'll know that the, the cost of transporting the gas is a mere fraction if it goes by pipeline under the ocean instead of on tankers on top of the ocean. And the distance is a fraction. I, I don't know it right off. It looks like it's maybe a thousand miles as opposed to the distance from New Orleans to uh, Western Germany. We're talking about a major cost of transport. It's also true that other factors weigh in. It is difficult, though, to put absolute numbers on this because, you know, the price of gas goes up and down according to market factors. And that's been a very significant piece of the puzzle recently. Right now, Western Europe is in the midst of a, a gas crunch, a gas crisis. In fact, people are freezing to death because they can't afford the cost of electricity, which is pegged to the cost of gas. What happened was that in its effort to get Western Europe off Russian gas, the United States was able to intervene in the negotiations and slow down the process, EU contract negotiations with Russia, and EU went to ordering gas on the spot market, thinking that it was going to get a better deal than by renewing contracts with Russia. The result has been that gas prices have skyrocketed so that now the sourcing that the United States could give is getting closer to what the price of gas is coming from Russia. Currently, Russia supplies about 40% of the EU's gas, while the United States supplies about 5%. And what the key motivation 
according to this analysis for the United States is to reverse those percentages. The United States wants to be number one, and it really wants to cut out uh, Russia as a source. In the midst of all this, what we see is, and this is a tragic, if not criminal thing, the ordinary people in Europe are really the losers. Some of them can't afford to heat their homes right now. That's the bottom line. And it's my own speculation that there's a cynicism in Washington saying that uh, what they want is for the Europeans to blame Russia for their gas problems and to say that it's caused by the threat of invasion of Ukraine, which is a complete lie. It's a falsehood. Well, let's turn to that because this is the crux of what's taking us to war is this false belief, or at least it's not in merit when it comes to any factual support that Russia is trying to and wants to invade the Ukraine. Now, they certainly have national security interests that we talked about some last week, and we could talk some tonight about. But there was an article today that NATO apparently knows the truth about the Russian invasion plans in that there are no plans. Apparently, a senior figure who represents an EU member state in the bloc's Brussels headquarters, has told a pan-European news outlet, Euractive, that they believe Russia is not on the verge of starting a military incursion in the Ukraine. It goes on to indicate there's a number of of indicators that suggest that, namely they, they do not have the number of troops on their border that it would take to do such a thing. A quote, To invade such a large country with such military forces like Ukraine, you need military capabilities other than those that have been currently deployed, the source said. So this is consistent with Moscow's denial that their troops are on the border are a threat for an invasion and instead are more of a defensive action due to all the activities that NATO has been employed in in the region as well as the neo-Nazi-led repression in the east of Ukraine against Russian-speaking populations in Donetsk and Luhansk. And arguably, the Russian forces are a deterrent to further incursions towards Luhansk and Donetsk by the Ukrainian army, rather than an invading force, as has widely been accepted by the mainstream media. And not to mention the political liability of doing such a thing. There are also problems in Ukraine based on who really is in power? Like you alluded to earlier, how the right wing, these kind of neo-Nazi extremists took significant power post-coup. It's not clear who has the upper hand in the army, the source went on. Western countries have accused Russia of massing troops and military hardware along the frontier with the intention of attacking its neighbor. Russia has consistently denied it. And I guess this particular article that came out yesterday um, is having a number of people questioning this basic claim that just gets repeated so often that it's considered to have great, great merit. In your article, you alluded to a former CIA officer, John Kirkko or whatever. What were his his observations that I think was important for our listeners to hear as well regarding the claims and intentions of Russia? Forgive me. I want to mention something that Professor Peter Beinart said. He just said, When will the U.S. stop lying to itself about global politics? And I also wanted to 
highlight something that Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, said basically that he would like people to calm down and stop creating a fuss. He thinks that it's upsetting Ukrainian people and he does not think that there's going to be an invasion. In fact, his people were at the table with the leaders of France and Germany and Russia working on a plan to completely de-escalate this thing and move to a solution along the lines of Minsk II. So that's, that's a start. I need you to repeat your question about the rest of what you're asking me. Yes, sir. In your article, you referred to the former CIA officer, John Carrico. Carrico, uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And what was his observations about, about the border area, of what it indicated or did not indicate based on the satellite images that claims have been made about? I hate to tell you this, but I think you may be mixing me up with somebody else, although I'm familiar with much of what Kiriakou has said. And I know that the observations that we have seen is that the Russian troop movements are quite ordinary. They do not indicate any escalation. And I believe that's all I need to say. There's also been talk in the press of troop movements in Belarusia, to the north of Ukraine, that are part of annual exercises. None of it is out of the ordinary. One of the things that observers have said recently is that Russian troop movements are uh, quite constant across the entire expanse of Russia, that is, from their borders with Europe going all the way to the Pacific. And it's very, very possible for the State Department and the CIA to make a big, big fuss about movements that really don't amount to anything. Yeah, I think that's what Carrico or whatever his name is. Maybe I got that from a different source, but it was very well articulated. I don't have the notes right in front of me. I thought it was from your articles. Apparently it was not. Uh, Well, let's just take a step back because along the same lines, I think it's important that we also start discussing the history of these NATO exercises that are on the border or very close to Russia. It seems pretty striking, and nobody seems to pay much attention to it, that the Warsaw Pact, which is kind of the sister of NATO, it went out of existence in 1991, right when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, went out of existence because that was the point of the Warsaw Pact in many sense. And that's what the point of NATO was. At least that's what we were told. The fact that NATO did not go out of existence, but only got bigger and bigger and bigger tells you another falsehood, right? That NATO was much more than something to just protect Europe from the Soviet Union, because once the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO just kept getting stronger and stronger. So By the way, I found this in your article. I've attributed it to it. Let me read this quote, and you tell me if this is true. In April, that would be last April, 2021, NATO backed the Ukrainian offensive in its civil war against Russia, allied separatists in the eastern provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. That is when Russia moved more troops to its border with Ukraine, signaling it would defend its allies. You got it. uh, Guilty as charged. I see my quote right there. Okay. Keep going. Former CIA officer and columnist John Kirko has reported that the actual number of Russian troops amassed on the Ukraine border estimated between 70,000 and 90,000 was the same number that had been there for the last eight years. And yeah. that Western media reports 
of a Russian troop buildup were inflammatory. So to your point that you have these troop movements that go on all the time, it reminds me of the other falsehood and the lie about Crimea, where we, we were told Russia invaded the Crimea with 20 to 25,000 troops. What we were failed to be told is that they were there under the protection of a treaty that was signed and that Russia pays hundreds of millions of dollars annually for the naval space there as well. So they were doing nothing that was in violation of an existing treaty, yet the American public were not told that. This is a type exactly. of absence and omission of important information that helps to shape the Americans' public to be very fearful of their enemies. But please elaborate just a, if you would, just a little bit more as you feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, I can tell you one thing that I wrote as I sort of meditated about that. It reminded me of what official Washington used to say about North Vietnamese invasion of South Vietnam. You know, it was like the tendency is for the United States to get in the business of setting up either puppet regimes or straw men type regimes and then defending their self-determination against uh, enemies. The way I wrote it here is all of Ukraine east of the Dnieper River is predominantly Russian speaking. U.S. claims of a Russian invasion are reminiscent of claims of North Vietnamese invasion of South Vietnam after the artificial U.S.-imposed separation of Vietnam in 1954. Can you just explain to our audience what really happened back in Vietnam during that year? Well, what had happened was after the, the Viet Minh, led by Ho Chi Minh, defeated the French colonial force at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, the U.S. Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, hastily convened a conference in Geneva of Vietnam, the Soviet Union, China, and the United States, and they agreed that Vietnam should be temporarily separated into South and North sections pending a vote two years later. Mm -hmm. uh, afterwards, the U.S. side decided that those elections would not be convenient since it was crystal clear that Ho Chi Minh would be elected president. Instead, what they did is go for a war to defend this puppet government that they had set up and defend its so-called self-determination against the invading Vietnamese uh, forces from northern Vietnam. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because it is true that back in 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine did become independent and the Russian-speaking parts of it stayed with Ukraine. Uh, but as you said, the Crimea, which had always been part of Russia, became a Russian base protected by treaty for which the Russian government paid the Ukrainian government essentially rent. We have a situation in the rest of the country that is still up for grabs, and that's what the Minsk II agreement is about. Essentially, the Ukrainian government and the Russian government, with support from the leaders of France and Germany, have agreed that this conflict can be essentially de-escalated by recognizing autonomy in the eastern part of Ukraine under a federated arrangement, but that they would remain part of Ukraine and the civil war would end. The, the federal troops that the Kiev government has mobilized against the breakaway provinces would be moved away. What does that do for 
Ukraine and Russia. It puts things on a peaceful posture, and you could call it, in the context of this war hysteria, Europe for the Europeans, and thanks but no thanks to NATO involvement. Whether that can happen, of course, really still depends on the warlike posture of Washington that is very, very interested in changing the, what you could call the gas economics of Russia, Ukraine, and Western Europe. It's sad, I gotta tell you, I think that this is something people here should think about, that it seems that the foreign policy in this country tends to be determined by energy companies and weapons manufacturers. So the fact that there's an interest in selling more American gas to Europe provides a good reason for the United States to push for a war against Russia and accuse Russia of threatening to invade Ukraine. You've got a kind of a newspeak. It's also reminiscent of the whole weapons of mass destruction lie that was used back in 2002 and 2003 in part of the war buildup for the U.S. to go into Iraq. And I think to your point, if you look at the history of our foreign policy just since 2000 with Libya, with Syria, with Iraq, on and on and on, we promote these conflicts. In fact, the Afghan papers showed very clearly that this Afghanistan war was unwinnable and we knew it was unwinnable and everyone was saying it was unwinnable that knew, but it was kept undercover so that the American public wouldn't know it. But what happens is it doesn't matter who wins the war. Great, great profits to be made by continuing the conflict by these entities you're speaking to. I don't think that is a conspiracy theory in any form or fashion when you can put together the fact and show these war profiteering beneficiaries, the only ones that do benefit, and they reinvest a percentage of the profiteering into extraordinary lobbying sums that influence the decisions of Congress. Meanwhile, we live in a society in which there is incredible wealth inequality and therefore, the mass media are owned increasingly by just a few corporations that are part of the same elite family that these warmongers are. And this is what largely explains why we keep getting into all of these unjust and, and these continuing conflicts. But it's amazing to me how powerful our propaganda war is that despite the fact that Russia has no military bases outside of its own country, except I think one in Syria and maybe you know a couple in the former Soviet Union. We have some 800 as uh, Katrina Van den Hovel, an American editor and publisher. She is the publisher, part owner, and former editor of the progressive magazine, The Nation. She's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And the wife of the late Stephen Cohen said very articulately, we have more military bases outside of our country than we do diplomatic missions. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think it's really instructive to take a look back. You know, when you think about Dr. Martin Luther King, he talked to us about being the greatest purveyor of violence. It was the first time a major figure actually called this out and dragged it out into the open. But we forget those lessons. Yet time and time again, we are absolutely convinced that these other countries 
our aggressors, but when you look historically, who is actually our aggressors in starting and whether the unjust wars or conflicts, we are really clearly the leading leading of the pack. And so that needs to be reconciled. And I think when I use the word we, I mean that we have a moral obligation to hold our government accountable uh, yes. for these terrible, terrible crimes and stop them. And so when I say we, I have great faith in the American public that if they get good information and can see all sides of the information, just like in a jury trial where you get both sides hearing all sides of the evidence, that they will make choices that point towards justice rather than nationalist types of blind faith type things. I do agree with you, but we are up against something. We have you, and I love the fact that you're bringing light through the darkness in Austin, but you and and I are up against a mainstream media attachment that is itself uh, an arm of the State Department and the war machine. So it's kind of an unbalanced uh, playing field. And what we need to know is that getting the truth out there is a gigantic undertaking. I mean, it's true that it can be done. You know, people have been in shock. A lot of people now realize that ever since the end of World War II, the U.S. has been engaged in wars, most of which it has either lost or not won. I think the notable exception is a a NATO adventure in Libya, where they were able to successfully kill Uh, President Gaddafi and destroy the government there, thereby disrupting energy supplies in Europe and changing the map in Africa. The disastrous engagements in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan now tend to speak for themselves. Yeah, and if I could add, in in Libya, right? I mean, Libya was a country with the highest human development index before our quote-unquote, successful overthrow of Gaddafi. Now it is a a killing field. So what might appear as a military success is a humanitarian disaster of unrivaled proportions for the humanity that live in that part of the world. Well, and it's also true that Libya is one of the sources, among several others in areas where the the U.S. government has been engaged in war, for the constant devastating flood of war refugees from Africa, Middle East, and Central Asia to Europe. And one of the things that causes me to bring that up is that the European people and their governments are tending to be a little bit less enthusiastic about joining in the war hysteria emanating from Washington. You know, it's... That's a great, very, very good point. Hey, listen, Dee, we're running out of time, and I didn't want to let you go before asking if people want more information about your upcoming book or your articles that you write, how can they access that information? Well, thanks for asking. Probably the easiest way is to go to my blog. My name is D Knight, D-E-E-K-N-I-G-H-T. Put those two words together, uh, dot blog, and you can find everything that I've written recently, including this article about the Ukraine crisis, as well as information about my book and an opportunity to send me a message. You can tell me I'm crazy. You can tell me you'd like to uh, get more information or you can give me information. All of that is encouraged. 
Very good. Well, listen, friend, I really appreciate the work that you do and the article that I alluded to, stripping away the BS, United States and Russian threats over Ukraine, what they're about and who's the aggressor. It just got published just a couple of days ago, and it has a number of of links on all of these topics that we've been talking about tonight. Thank you for your investigative journalism, and we'll look forward to keeping up with your work and staying in touch. Thank you very much. I do look forward to that and appreciate it very much. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity.